This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And the Australian government doesn't have the greatest reputation for their ability to roll out major tech programs or for their policies around data privacy and security. So when a couple of weeks ago, the health minister and the Department of Digital Health announced the My Record, My Health Record would be opt out rather than opt in as it's been for the past six years or so, it attracted a fair bit of scrutiny and it appears to have come up wanting. We've asked uh, Dr. Sulet Dreyfus to drop by to talk about My Health Record and also about other data and security laws that are out there and hoovering up our personal data online. Um, Sulet's got a long history looking at these issues and is a lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. It's great to have you back at Triple R, Sulet. Very happy to be here. And so my health record, opt out. Oh, yes. It seemed to, it actually from my point of view, seemed to have come from nowhere, but it can't have come from nowhere. This must have been on the, on the drawing board for a while that it was going to become an opt out system. It has. Uh, so it was originally introduced as an opt-in system. I think about 6 million Australians already have um, a My Health record. Um, but what we've seen with the opening of the opt-out system is, I think in the first day or two, 20,000 people chose to opt out. So people are voting with their feet. Yeah, and those that couldn't do it on the first day did it on the second and third exactly. and fourth. I mean, a lot of people have opted out, including me. I've opted out because I actually want some more information about it. Uh, and so we've sort of seen the, the digital health organisation a little bit on the back foot or maybe they're on the offensive as well trying to tell people why they should stay in. Yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> the Australian Digital Health Agency uh, is uh, run by Tim Kelsey. He's a former British journalist um, with News Limited, now the um, executive director, and he operated a similar scheme in the UK, which was very controversial and effectively um, shut down because of how controversial it was. Um, in this case, there was uh, actually reports from the Daily Mail Mail, uh, of information that had been handed over or sold to the in private insurance industry um, and or companies that might have dual activities, so in defense as well as insurance. And this is quite interesting because there's a big growth in the intelligence area uh, around trying to get health records of people. You can imagine that if they're people who are targets or persons of interest to intelligence, they want to know if you have a physical ailment. Um, as a point of weakness. So uh, so getting a whole population's records is immensely rich, data-rich for analysis. Uh, and in this case, the um, it's not entirely clear what will happen with my health records. So we've been told that it won't be given to insurers. But there's something in data security um, that's known as forward security. It's a concept that says if I send you an email, it's encrypted. You can't, someone who intercepts it can't decrypt it today. But but in five or ten years' time, that may be breakable. So the security in a forward sense is not stable. I actually talk about something called security uh, forward privacy. Um, and that's around whether or not data that you give today will continue to attract the same privacy protections um, that you get, you know, in five years' time or ten years' time. And I am concerned that um, my health record won't do that. Um, now, there are some provisions in it that are particularly concerning. One of them is around um, health researchers accessing the data, which would otherwise be great, right? Because we want to know whether um, cancer clusters, if there's poisonous drinking water, those sorts of things. 
On the other hand, the provision within that says the information can only be used if it's in the public interest and not solely for commercial purposes. And you say, really? (laughs) (laughs) Solely? So does that mean it will be used for commercial purposes? Um, In addition to which, it can actually also be provided to the police. And the basis on which it's provided to the police is somewhat disturbing. So which is basically in aid of a crime or believed to be. I mean, the threshold is very low. Um, uh, Or also um, for protection of revenue. Whoa, really? Revenue? So I guess there's a, a trade-off people need to think about, you know, how important is their private health information? It's difficult to price this exactly. However, one metric um, can be determined by the sort of computer underground dark web. And if we've seen that private information is sold on that to the darker elements of society uh, in the order of 10 cents to a dollar for someone's record of credit card, um, uh, maybe in, in the U.S. their social security number, address, driver's license, that sort of thing. Um, I've seen reports of health records being sold for $10. So it's an order of magnitude greater. And this is, as you can understand, indicative of how valuable that information is to third parties. Um, And so when people think about their private health record, they need to be thinking about forward privacy. They need to be thinking about, well, maybe it doesn't have, I don't think it has that much commercial value, but actually it does. And the really serious implication is not just the health value for you. It's, I was recently at uh, Splendor in the Grass, and I was uh, running it on two panels on cybersecurity, and my health record was a key talking point uh, as part of this with a set of cybersecurity experts around Australia. And one of the things that came up in this conversation was a young, a young man in the audience who stood up. He looked like he was about 22, saying, well, I've got nothing to hide. I've never been to hospital. I'm not sick. Why do I care if someone has my health record? Doesn't matter, right? And what was pointed out to him by the members of the panel is it's not just you. It's your father, your brother, your child. Because if you're related genetically, if there are genetic ailments, the implications are for your family members as well. And if you think that this information isn't stored and tracked and analyzed by health insurers and life insurers, that would be a wrong assumption. Mm. And there's been issues, as you've mentioned, in the likes of of the UK with a similar type of initiative there. Mm. We've seen also just recently in Singapore, there was a pretty serious data breach that led to people's health records um, being leaked and and shared in Australia with other kind of digital initiatives of the Australian government, such as the the big census kind of fail in recent memory, Mm. raises pretty serious concerns, I think, about data security and the ability for governments, not only the Australian government, to keep our data private. So this um, expert panel that was at Splendid Grass is international standard. And um, an audience member asked, you know, well, can we really keep this data secret? And to a person, the panel members basically said, if you have a large data set and it is in some way connected, um, there is, you know, it is virtually impossible to keep it secure if someone really wants in. And this is really valuable data. And it's true. We've seen this major data breach um, from Sing Health, a country that is really expert at data security. Um, it compromised the personal data of 1.5 million patients. Um, it uh, included also outpatient medical data of 160,000 patients. And 
We know that the attackers, in repeated attacks, actually targeted the records of the Prime Minister of Singapore. So this was a very deliberate attack, not only on the population of Singapore, but on its Prime Minister. And it illustrates again how important and valuable this information is. So... One of the things that also became clear is that this information had been exfiltrated at least a week before it was actually identified. And that's actually a short time frame. They picked it up quite quickly. Uh, we've seen in other studies that it might be six months or more on average before information is discovered to have been breached. So it's possible that if this database comes to exist here in Australia, you could have breaches and they wouldn't be discovered for a very long time. Yeah, and I, I want to sort of flip over and talk about some of the benefits, Sulet, because we, I mean, I can see, even though I, I mentioned at the beginning that I have opted out because I want some more information, but I can see some benefits to me of having, you know, access to my medical health records because in the past when I've asked for such things from my GP, it's like, well, they're our records. Or, you know, when I, when I was having my daughters, you know, I'd try and get information from the from um, staff about such things when I was travelling, it's like, no, nah, they're our records, not your records. And mm. I and that sort of shocked me at the time. And I thought, oh, well, this sort of a system means maybe I'll have access to information that's really hard for me to get at the moment or I have to go place by place. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm concerned about it all being there and also that my ability to curate it, like can I mm. t- choose what goes in and what goes out? And I wonder about um, your views on how the, the onus of... Um, the emphasis on the digital health agency to educate me and mm-hmm. the people in general and to start to talk about such things as forward privacy as you've brought up and convince me, you know, and because yeah. the benefit could be there for me, but I'm going to opt out because I'm worried about the the, the other things. So um, uh, the digital health uh, record, there was a remarkable amount of silence about it before this uh, opt-out system was released. Very little public engagement. Um, and even to date, there's been very little promotion. In fact, it would appear that um, uh, the head of the uh, ADHA's major push in this public information space is through, strangely enough, Australia Post, but be that as it may. Um, so I, I, it's not surprising that you would feel concerned about it. Um, it was interesting. There was a, a Q&A panel at Splendor, and on it was Susan Lay, the former Liberal Federal Health Minister. And she talked about this particular uh, issue and she talked about the benefits. And I have a bit of sympathy for it. So she's saying, look, um, you know, if you have uh, remote Aboriginal um, uh, people in remote communities, if you have people who have chronic health problems and they're moving from location to location, it can be quite beneficial to the different doctors to be able to get a full record of their health. However, um, I would say in response to that that just because you opt out of my health record today doesn't mean your health records disappear. So most people go to a GP they use regularly or a GP clinic they use regularly. They probably have a regular hospital they go to if they have a chronic health problem. Those records are still going to be there. It's just a question of whether or not they are um, uploaded, centralized, merged in another database and then accessible to doctors all over the country. Uh, and and that's that's an interesting question. So you know the question is, if you never travel to Kananera in Northwest Australia, um, you know, do you need your health records to be accessible to people in Kananera? That's kind of a useful question to ask. 
Mm. What does the future hold for, for my health record, do you think? Because there's been uh, quite a lot of criticism in, in recent times, the last couple of weeks. The AMA has concerns. Even Tim Wilson from the Liberal Party said he would opt out, um, given that he's part of a government that is has brought this opt-out uh, uh, issue up now from where it was previously. Is it going to just kind of continue as it is, or do you think the concerns are, are such that uh, it may not um, be as it is currently? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It would be very interesting to know, and I think there should be some public declaration of how many people in the Australian Federal Cabinet will be choosing to opt out. Uh, and I think another question is how many members of the front bench in the shadow cabinet will be opting out, because that's a really indicative thing. If they're not all um, choosing to stay in, then I think we have some pretty serious questions. Um, I don't have a sense that Tim Kelsey, as the head of the ADHA, uh, will be backing down at all. Mm. Um, he's been fairly obstinate and clearly willing to attack the integrity of a very well-known and professional journalist uh, who's asked questions in this space. So I suspect the desire is not there to back down. Um, there clearly are some benefits, uh, and and some doctors have expressed support for this. You can see how it will make their lives a bit easier. But, you know, it would also be convenient if we were to have all of our records public all of the time to all of government and all of industry. That would be also extremely convenient, <laughs> um, but not so good for us. Mm. So, you know, part of the problem here is that we live in an era when people know that their privacy is dwindling. They have chosen in many cases to choose anonymity as an alternative for the privacy they can no longer get in a digital space. Now, the issue with that is anonymity is increasingly dwindling as well. So the ability to take a data set and extract from that data set a small amount of information that can identify someone. There was a study done, I think it was out of MIT, a few years ago that found out of something like more than a million people um, uh, in a data set, if you had just a couple of data points, you could identify with something like more than 95% accuracy an individual person out of this set. Three or four data points. And that's really disturbing because it means, and we've now seen with research out of my own school, that if you have a large record that's supposedly de-identified of people's health records, you can actually figure out with just a little bit of information, a postcode, a birth date, um, who that person is, that, that woman in Camberwell who's 47 who's had breast cancer. Um, and that has all sorts of implications for whether you can get or how much you get charged for um, uh, life insurance and a set of other things. And it's not just insurance. It's your future employment. So increasingly you have employers asking for things like, give us your social media account. It's not so very long, and in fact, I think we've seen in the US, before they're asking all sorts of information about your health records. And also, I mean, the ability, and I think we're going over time, but this idea of what, even if you delete something, mm. it's still there. And I think this is kind of that rural um, side of things. But if you're already in my health record, and I know people that are in, have opted in over the past couple of years, uh, are now wondering, well, if I opt out now, does that all come off or do I, what control do I have? And that is a, a legitimate question because at some point you might want to opt out once you've opted in for a while. But 
does it get deleted or what happens? Yeah, no. So I, <laughs> I, I, I laughed because it's, it's, um, it's a wish that people would have that I could take a box and my information will come in or out at will. No. Once that information is out of your control, you no longer have it. Okay. And, and this is what we see in other things, you know, the big tech companies, scraping data, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica story. Once the information is beyond your control, it gets merged in with other databases. It gets matched with other things. There is data mining and analytics that goes on. And that information is gone. Right, you really don't control it anymore, and whether it's gone in a sort of anonymized or at least um, declared to be anonymized sense, um, or whether or not it's actually gone, it is maybe two different stories. But uh, and there is actually something interesting. There's an evolving concept been put in practice in health research around what's called dynamic consent. So if you've given consent for health records to be used for a research study. You can go back in and untick, I don't want this to go out, I don't want that to go out. But And, and that's maybe okay where you've got ethical academic researchers in health. However, when it comes to private business, they view they've purchased this information and there is a lot of data selling and buying that goes on, big data sets of you and me. Uh, when that happens, forget it. You don't even know it's out there, let alone it's being sold, let alone being able to yank a chain and pull it back again. So I guess in a sense, my advice, and I too have opted out of my health record, um, is you know you can choose to opt out now and then you can decide in six or 12 months that you want to change your Once mind. Once they've made the mm. case. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Very. Well, it sort of feels a bit dark, but at the same time, um, it's valuable and we need to be across this stuff. And I suppose the challenge is out there for proponents of it to either improve this system or explain how they've dealt with all these concerns that people such as yourself are raising. So mm-hmm. thanks for coming in, Sulet. Thank, Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Sulet Dreyfus, she's with the University of Melbourne School of Computing and Information Systems. It, so last week we heard Channel 9 and Fairfax are going to merge. Um, how's this going to play out? Uh, we've asked Stephen Mean to join us. He's a shareholder activist. He's founder of Crikey. And uh, great to have you on Triple R, Stephen. Thanks, Carly. And hi, Dylan. Hello. And, uh, I mean, look, there's been all sorts of concerns raised since that announcement was made to the... Um, ASX, um, we've heard about the quality of journalism being uh, under under a cloud now there over at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and Financial Review, uh, worries about diversity and concentration of media ownership. What was your take on it, Stephen? Um, look, I think it makes uh, commercial sense because uh, these old media companies need to get to scale uh, to take on the global giants like, um, like Google and Facebook. But... I'm very worried about the journalistic um, impact uh, because, you know, the company will be more focused on sort of entertainment and and advertising and lifestyle and and building mass audiences around sort of commercial drivers and not that traditional civic journalism uh, side of things. So the cultures are very different. The Nine culture is nothing like the Fairfax culture in terms of that sort of pride in, in journalistic integrity and trailblazing, uh, keep the Barcelona's style journalism. So, like many others, I'm, I'm you know, nervous um, and, and worried about what it could mean for um, 
for journalism and particularly the, the optics of dropping the Fairfax name. You know, so they're very clearly making it known that it's a takeover, that, that Nine is the boss, that the, the Nine culture will prevail. And a lot of people are, are nervous about that, um, and I, I am as well. I think it could expedite um, further contraction of um, what we've all known and loved with um, sort of traditional Fairfax independent, well-resourced uh, journalism, primarily through the age in Victoria. And so this was allowed to happen um, coming out of the, the change to media ownership laws that happened last year. And I guess the argument in favour of that change was that uh, because the media landscape has changed so much, it's, it's diversified, there's much more kind of online content and effectively, I guess, more players, which means that owning, uh, you know, a major network and, and newspaper in a major city isn't necessarily as uh, problematic as it once was. What's your take on that? I mean, given we've seen this takeover happen now, are you concerned that, that media con- concentration in ownership could happen on a more um, kind of regular basis? I think if you if you add up all of the power that um, that the combined company will have, uh, you know, control of three AW, Channel Nine, and the Age, all, all in one in one company. So, which has got a, a profit motive and a, and a chairman in Peter Costello, who's a, you know, a partisan political player. So, if if all of those resources were able to be deployed uh, to a political end or to you know, a particular campaign, it would be very powerful. And, uh, and that's just the basic argument for why you, what you want diversity of media is you don't want um, a single voice to have too much power. It's a, it's a classic anti-monopoly uh, competition perspective, but particularly sensitive in a, in a democratic society where influencing voters uh, you know, is, is a very powerful thing. So that's why I think it's a, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, when the rules were thought about, it wasn't 3AW as well. It was just the dangers of uh, putting together the... the a big daily newspaper with one of the three commercial TV stations throw in throughout up as well, which is you know the most power, one of the most powerful media voices in Melbourne, and all of that is is very potent potentially, and that's and that's the worry. Uh, yes, there's alternative voices, but in terms of influencing an election, uh, influencing you know a major campaign, all of those old media voices together you know, would be a very dominant force in Melbourne if they were deployed by a board and a management team that wanted to swing an election or, or change some outcome or, you know, oppose climate change or, you know, take a particular line, um, you know, promote commercial interests and their advertisers, for instance, uh, over, you know, more public interest considerations. And we know that um, Fairfax, um, there's been a lot of job losses, particularly journalism job losses over the last few years. It's been really relentless, the announcements coming out of there. Um, but when this was announced, we've seen an effect on the nine... Um, uh, share price. Um, we've seen some positive news for the Fairfax share price. Do you think that will continue? Will that keep moving up and down? Do you think? Maybe you can give us a bit of a share market rundown of what's happened since the announcement. Sure. Well, I mean, it's combined. It's lost value. So the, the value of the two companies was four point two billion when they announced it last mm. Thursday morning, and now it's uh, it's three point eight. So that's that's mainly been that the, the the nine share price has fallen from two dollars fifty two to a low this morning of two dollars fifteen. Um, and that's because they had gone for a big run. Their share price had surged up. You know, it got down as low as a dollar a couple of years ago, and then and it surged up. And so they used the opportunity of a, of a high share price to pay for Fairfax by issuing new shares. Uh, but clearly, in terms of negotiating to get control, and control primarily comes with 
the ability to call themselves Nine, so to consign the Fairfax corporate name to history, and to have the two key positions, which is the chairman and the CEO, which is what Nine has negotiated. So traditionally in takeovers, if you want to control the company you want to buy, you have to pay a premium. You have to offer you know, more than it's worth. You have to offer a big price. And that's what Nine has done. And so Fairfax has said, well, thank you very much. We'll take, um, take your very big offer. But because the Channel 9 share price has fallen you know, more than 10%, that means Fairfax is receiving less because they're being paid in shares. So, um, you know, this hasn't exactly been 2 plus 2 equals 5. So far, it's been 2 plus 2 equals 3.5. So it's been, a, it's been a destroyer of shareholder value so far. And that sort of weakens the arguments for, for the takeover. And, um, you know, I think that will be an interesting thing to watch because, uh, you know, Fairfax shareholders are not happy to see the Channel 9 price falling away. Channel 9 shareholders are not happy to see that they're offering too much to buy a business, which some people think is not very attractive because it's got old newspapers and things like that uh, in the stable. It's my understanding, Stephen, that the ACCC is, is scrutinising this to ensure that this merger, as it's been called, or, or takeover, uh, to ensure it aligns mm-hmm. with the legislation around media mm-hmm. diversity. Is it likely, do you think, that they'll find that this deal is, is fully above board? Um, I suspect that they will uh, approve the deal, although Paul Keating and, and others have called for the ACCC to block it. Sometimes you get negotiated outcomes, so... They might be told they've got to sell off the radio stations or, you know, do something to try and and maximise diversity. So, you know, I think, for instance, you know, in the UK, when there was a big takeover bid, um, you know, when Rupert was trying to buy control of Sky PLC, the government did a big review, they intervened and they, you know, they negotiated all these assurances about, you know, the independence and, and potential separation of Sky News, which they said was a very important part of their their considerations for political debate and diversity in the UK. So, you know, I would have thought there might be some argument for something like that in Australia or, or, or some commitment that, you know, the newspapers will continue to be printed five days a week for another two or three years. You'd hope you get some sort of negotiation around that. And I suspect that the Fairfax journalists may well mobilise and try and get some sort of more concrete undertaking around editorial independence than just a sort of a a verbal commitment from the nine bosses. Oh, yes, yes, we will respect the charter of editorial independence. So I'm expecting the Fairfax journalists might mobilise on that, try and seek something more formal, because the deal requires the approval of 75% of the Fairfax shares uh, by value, which are voted uh, at the shareholder meeting, plus... 50% 50% of the shareholders in total. So if you round up you know, a few thousand small shareholders in these sort of change of control takeover situations, you actually get a, a, a powerful position for the small shareholders. So you might see some mobilisation around that and issue as well where journalists buy shares, encourage others to buy shares and try and negotiate some sort of greater commitments and even maybe negotiate around Peter Costello. I mean, I think he's actually a bit of a problem having a partisan figure sitting at atop the most powerful... Um, old media business, you know, combine that with Rupert Murdoch, you know, you've got Rupert Murdoch and Peter Costello, two of the, you know, symbolic heads of the most powerful commercial media in Australia and both obviously to the right in politics. Yeah, and you've got some experience around um, that sort of shareholder activism, Stephen, so it'd be interesting to see if that does happen. But, I mean, yeah, you've mentioned um, Rupert Murdoch a few times. The idea now is, you know, that we we should be concerned that other big media companies through these rule changes will seek to merge. Again, um, we're, we're hearing the potential mm-hmm. for Channel 7 and, mm-hmm. and News Limited and, and so forth. What are your thoughts around that? 
it, it might happen because uh, Seven West Media is left as a sort of a distant third player, um, second tier magazine publisher, Channel 7 plus the West Australian um, in Perth, which has sort of just gone through a merger of its newsroom between the, the Daily Newspaper in Perth and the Channel 7 newsroom, which is something that, you know, people are looking at and saying, well, could that happen in Melbourne and Sydney? Um, with, with Fairfax. So, I don't know, it's interesting. Kerry Stokes is the controller of Channel 7. You know, he's a billionaire in his own right, worth you know, $4 billion, partly mainly because the oil price is booming and his, his value from, from the energy sector has gone through the roof. So, he can afford to continue to keep Seven as a bit of a, a trophy asset. And, you know, billionaires often are attracted to media assets all over the world. The media sector is, is known for having families or billionaires as controlling shareholders because, you know, quite uniquely because of the power and prestige that it, that it brings. So I'm not sure that Kerry Stokes is going to give all that up and just sell to, um, to Rupert. And that would have more competition considerations given that Rupert, you know, has 60% of the daily newspapers, a monopoly over the pay TV market. If you threw in a free to air, um, network as well, uh, plus uh, Sun Lachlan owns the Nova radio network. You know, these are unprecedented levels of concentration in the Australian media market. So I think there'd be even fur- further concern if that was proposed, similar to the concerns about the Nine Fairfax deal. Yeah, and if we just swing back to the um, the Nine Fairfax deal again, I mean, the the, the um, parts of Fairfax that are seen to have been of great value in this deal is Domain and also Stan, the streaming service. Do you see that that has been what's attracted Nine to it predominantly? Clearly, the share market is saying that Domain is, is worth about, you know, almost two-thirds of what the whole of Fairfax is worth. Um, and so, in a way, Domain has saved Fairfax because the value they've been able to create from online real estate listings and advertising, supported by the editorial and the promotion coming from the print product, that is what has created the value. And Rupert's done that even better with realestate.com.au, which is worth, you know, $11 billion and has been promoted and supported by all the News Corp, newspapers and media properties um, across Australia. If you look at Sky Business these days, it's very much, you know, promoting uh, real estate. Uh, more than a, you know, traditional business news, which is all about increasing the share price and the value of of uh, realestate.com. Uh, so, yes, domain is is pivotal. You will see Channel Nine and the Block and all those shows, you know, promoting domain if uh, in drawing in more audiences if the merger goes ahead. That's all great from a sort of a business point of view. Uh, where does it leave the journalism? You know, again, that comes back to that issue of, uh, um, you know, it is a bit of a worry and, and journalism might be sort of a second-class citizen, citizen as opposed to, you know, marketing blitzes uh, to promote the commercial value of domain. Well, yeah, it's, um, I suppose we've got to see what comes, whether this deal actually uh, goes ahead, but it sounds like it will. And um, perhaps when it happens, we should get you back and talk more about it, Stephen. Love to you, Carlia. Thanks for your time today. And even though Australia's wealth is largely built on immigration and immigrants, for the first time in a long time, we're starting to get a public debate on the merits and challenges of being a migrant nation. There's talk about the numbers of temporary visas, population growth and house prices. And on the flip side, there's concern about the annual migration target becoming a cap and the narrowing of pathways for migrants to become Australian citizens, even when they've worked and paid taxes and university fees here for years and years. It's a mixed picture and we couldn't have a better person to talk about it than Peter Mayers, who's written extensively on this topic and co-edited the latest Griffith Review on immigration and it's titled Who We Are. And it's really great to have you on Triple R, Peter. 
Thanks very much. Great to be with you. And as I said, it's a mixed picture, immigration and Australia, and it's something that we don't talk about all the time, but we're hearing um, more people talk about whether we need population targets and a sort of a national debate on this. Do you welcome that? Look, I think that it's, an, um, you know, in a democratic society, we should be able to talk about issues every issue that's important to the country and certainly population is uh, you know it's a it's a issue that is of concern one um and so one we should talk about and we should be careful not to conflate population and immigration because of course they're two separate things um you, as, at the moment immigration is accounting for about 60 percent of australia's population growth but the other 40 percent or so is coming from people having babies so you know both both factors um, are part of the whole population question and i mean we've seen uh, i heard malcolm turnbull say repeatedly that we're the most successful multicultural nation on earth but increasingly kind of most recently we've been hearing migration talked about in um respect to population growth and housing prices and i guess the the costs of migrants or or the impact it might have on australians ability to own a home are you concerned with with i guess the trend that the the public conversation has taken um, well, I'm com- concerned with any discussion that oversimplifies things, and I think that the simplistic linking of house prices and um, immigration uh, is unhelpful. Um, of course, you know, in any um, market, if you add the, add in more buyers and you don't increase the supply of goods, prices go up. So in that sense, yes, immigration is one of the factors driving the growth in house prices or has been, but equally driving house price growth. And I'm I'm publishing a book about housing policy in uh, mid-September, so I've been thinking about these issues um, separate to the Griffiths Review article uh, um, um, publication. But, it, you know, there's a whole lot of other factors driving um, house price inflation. So one would be the, the role of investors coming into the market who are not buying houses because they need to live in them they're buying houses because they want to achieve a speculative gain on the increased value of the property and they're assisted by tax laws like negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount so another factor in in housing is um, what type of um, planning rules we have and whether it's possible to increase the supply of housing in places people want to live that is within reach of jobs and transport and schools and parks and all those sorts of things so i think to just blame immigration for increasing house prices is to really oversimplify the issue and also to you know there's there's always a risk in this in these sorts of conversations that we end up blaming uh one group of people for a a complex problem um you know scapegoating essentially saying well immigrants are to blame because uh the trains are too crowded well maybe the trains are too crowded because we didn't build enough railway lines um, if, you, if you look back at the, the post-war period from, you know, 1945 onwards, Australia experienced mass immigration in that post-war, um, in those post-war decades. As not, you know, as a share of population, just as high as the immigration we're having now, house prices didn't go up because we built a lot more housing, including a lot more public housing. So there's always a whole lot of complex issues um, that come together. 
And I suppose um, just to follow that that train of thought, uh, I mean, in uh, the latest Griffith, um, you and others write that actually in Australia, immigration hasn't been scapegoated as much uh, on these issues as perhaps in other parts of the world where we're seeing a lot of conflict around, um, well, refugees, but also just uh, skilled um, migration in parts of Europe and, you know, it fueled d- discussions around what's happening in um, with Brexit and so forth. So in some ways we haven't, haven't seen, um, I suppose, the, the massive polarisation around immigration that other places have? Yeah, I think Australia has not had as bitter and divisive and um, uh, poisonous debate as many other countries. Um, but we have, of course, uh, seen it come up and, and every now and again, and it tends to come up um, in times of uh, economic uncertainty, high unemployment, low growth, you you know you can see a kind of pattern where where sentiment um, turns then um, that that's not un, uncommon um, but and and we're seeing it now I mean we're seeing it now in the whole African gangs uh, um, stuff that's going on you know Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton and other uh, and Malcolm Turnbull um, scapegoating. Uh, immigrants from a particular community and as if they are the cause of uh, all um, a whole set of social problems, which is not to say that, you know, there may be some uh, young African migrants involved in violent crimes and all the rest of it. That's true. But to, to sort of scapegoat and, and name in this way is, in my view, particularly unhelpful to uh, building a cohesive society and, as I say, exploring complex issues. Yeah, and, and Abbott has said as part of that um, whole furor, I guess, questioned why we're letting people in who are going to be, di- be difficult to integrate, which is kind of putting the onus on on others to, you know, get get with us rather than putting the effort to appropriately, um, you know, have people as part of Australian society. I, I want to talk to you about... Temporary- can, can, I just, can I just throw something in there, Dylan? Because I think it's really interesting. I think it would be interesting to have a conversation between Tony Abbott and Philip Ruddock. When Philip Ruddock was Immigration Minister in the period around the Tampa and after that, his argument was, you know, we shouldn't be letting people come by boat because there are all these refugees waiting patiently in camps and we should be helping the most needy and Philip Ruddock redirected Australia's humanitarian program away from Asia and towards Africa because he said these are the most needy people these are the people we should be helping so it's ironic that we've got Tony Abbott now making all these um, uh, claims about uh, African migrants when it was his colleague Philip Ruddock who shifted the focus of Australia's humanitarian program to increase the intake from Africa. Yeah, we can have short memories sometimes. We can. Um, I want to ask you about temporary migration because your last book looked into, I guess, that issue and, and the effect that temporary migration, the changes that was bringing on Australia and, and other countries as well. The government's made it effectively harder for people to obtain citizenship and permanent residency here in Australia in, in recent times. I wonder what sort of effect that, that is having currently. I mean, we know temporary migrants um, have sometimes been at the receiving end of kind of wage exploitation and that sort of thing. But, but are you concerned about the state of things today in, in that area? Yeah, look, and I'd recommend the the first um, essay in in the collection, which is our lead essay, which is by um, James Button, former age journalist James Button, and Abel Rizvi. Abel is a a former um, senior official in the Immigration Department. Um, So that that canvasses, I guess, in in broad terms, 
the arguments for migration, the arguments against migration, as well as assessing where we are uh, in migration in Australia, where we've got to. But, um, yeah, look, um, you're right. There is uh, the, the pathways from being a temporary migrant to becoming a permanent migrant or a citizen have been narrowed. So we don't know what the long-term implications of this will be. But it much, it's much harder, for example, now for an international student who graduates in Australia to, uh, to move then through to becoming a permanent resident. So that may um, mean that Australian, Australia's education system is less attractive to some students. It may uh, result in a drop of numbers. It's too soon to tell. It may mean that we have more people moving into uh, seeking to stay on a partner visa because they've met an Australian. So often uh, in my research, when I've come across um, students who wanted to stay in Australia, they don't want to do it through a partner visa uh, because they don't want to, you know, uh, although they're in a relationship with Australian, they don't want to put the stress on the relationship. They want to do it on their own merits as a skilled migrant in their own rights, etc. So we might see a blowout, I think, in, in the number of people applying for partner visas, you know, as, as fiancés or partners or, or, or whatever, um, you know, there will be unpredictable consequences and that much with any migration program uh, I, can, I can predict. But I'm just let me say one more thing about temporary migration and that is that I'm alarmed by the way the Labor Party is running at the moment. We've heard several statements from several senior Labor Party figures talking about 1.6 million temporary migrant workers in Australia. That figure is nonsense. Um, it must include all the New Zealanders who are here. That's the only way you can add it up. Or it must include all the um, tourists who are here. There are a lot of temporary migrants and there are a lot of temporary migrants who work. But, you know, again, we, we need to be accurate in what we're saying and not blame people. Like the implication in Labor's arguments is that these, are, these temporary migrants are taking Australian jobs. And mm. again, I think that sort of argument is, is deeply um, problematic. Uh, Peter Mayers is speaking with us. He's co-editor of the new Griffith Review. It's uh, focused on immigration. There's um, heaps of different essays in there. Um, who we are is what the issue is called. And I mean, just to stay on some of the discussion points in that that lead essay, Peter, um, we do um, the authors do write about uh, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton's approach to. Um, uh, visa numbers, um, all different kinds, temporary as well as permanent ones. And we used to have a a goal for how many visas we'd be giving out. Now we've got a cap. And so we're seeing yeah. t- effectively tens of thousands fewer visas given out. This is concerning business. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I think it's a really interesting uh, and uh, development. So every year in the budget, Australia sets its uh, migration program and the budget is predicated on that, not just in terms of the numbers coming in, but also that has implications for revenue, how much tax will be paid. Because you've got to remember that temporary migrants and permanent migrants are like a goldmine for government, right? So permanent migrants can't access Centrelink or welfare payments or things for, you know, for a few years after they arrive. Temporary migrants don't get, generally don't get any of them. So these are people who are here working, paying taxes and not drawing down any government services or getting any government benefits. So to then cut the numbers has implications for budget, bottom line. That's one thing. But as you say, um, you know, standard practice for decades has been the government in the budget sets the annual migration um, number um, and, and that's based on an assessment of where the economy's at and how many skilled migrants we might need and that sort of thing but 
the language has changed. Rather than a target, as you say, it's now a cap. And so Dutton appears, well, we don't know why this is happening. Dutton says this is because they're adding in extra security checks and so they're not processing as many visas. But whatever the reality of that, it appears that the government or the minister, because it hasn't been a cabinet decision or a government decision, the minister is deliberately not filling the numbers. So in the last financial year, the numbers were 20,000 or 28,000 lower than they could have been under the target. And the previous year, there were 6,500 lower. So we've got this debate about immigration levels in, in, in the government, you know, uh, the Treasurer saying one thing and, and Tony Abbott and saying another and then Dutton apparently using his own powers as Home Affairs Minister to make unilateral decisions on the number of visas that get issued. Um, now, that means, of course, um, fewer skilled migrants and business or fewer permanent skilled migrants because maybe it means people stay, remain temporary for longer. Um, that would be one one thing, and it might mean also that people who are trying to bring their partner to Australia or trying to get their partner to be a permanent resident of Australia ha- have to wait longer. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as you say, we don't know necessarily how it's going to evolve, but it is, um, I do wonder, because Peter Dutton is a, a politician, whether he sees uh, electoral benefit in, in doing this or not. And I suppose, I don't, I don't necessarily ask you to speculate, but when it does come to politics, this does happen, doesn't it? We get periods of time when we see the rise again of, of, of one nation and um, that we... Does this mark a shift in our conversation about immigration, that it's going to be more polarised or will we continue to have a more harmonious approach? Well, as you say, I I could only speculate, but if we look at the results from the by-election over the weekend in Longman and a 15% vote for One Nation, uh, it might might well be a calculation on the part of certain Liberal Party national... Liberal National Party uh, strategists to say, um, you know, immigration is a vote winner for us or a vote loser for us. So we need to be seen to be reducing migration numbers in order to capture that vote back from, from One Nation. So I think there there is an issue there and, and um, it may also be a way in which the coalition seeks to differentiate itself from Labor. We've seen a lot of comments in which the coalition's been blaming Labor for high migration levels under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. Interestingly, of course, the settings that led to that high level of immigration, which peaked in the first year of the Rudd government, were created by the previous government because, of course, there's always a lag between the setting of policy and the numbers increasing. Um, So uh, I just make that point in passing. Um, But I think it's a very... It's very dangerous politics to play um, this sort of uh, um, finger pointing and, and to see, uh, you know, to treat immigration as a as a vote winner. You know, and, and the African gangs is the most egregious example because um, it's you know we're in the lead up to Victorian state election here. The amount of damage that can be done by handling by not handling these issues carefully, I think, is is quite large. Well, I know that um, we we're out of time. You need to be at another appointment. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Peter. And um, and we'll recommend uh, the new Griffith Review to people who want to investigate this topic a little bit further. It's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of issues in there, and, and not just immigration, but multiculturalism, the history of multiculturalism, you know, the way in which we belong, as well as a lot of personal 
experiences um, by by different authors who you know come from different backgrounds. So I, I hope people enjoy reading it. And thanks very much for your interest. No worries, thanks, um, Peter. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.